The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com. So Romans 4, verses 9 to 12. Is this then only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? For we say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. The purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised." This is the word of the Lord. Uh, Let's pray before we have a look at God's word together and ask him for the help we need. Father, we thank you for your word. Lord, we are not a people who want to invent what God is like. We are not a people who want to invent what it means to worship him. We want to be submitted, Lord, to your word, what you have said. And we thank you, Lord, that as we turn through the pages of your word, we find the most beautiful, the most unique salvation that it is not by our works. It's not our goodness that makes us right with you. We could never accomplish such a thing. It's your grace for us in Jesus Christ that we receive by faith. We thank you for this, Lord, this core beautiful truth that makes us who we are before you. Lord, we pray now that as we come before your word as a community, Lord, that your word would inspire faith in us. We pray, Holy Spirit, that you would take these words we ponder this morning and make them come alive. Write them on our hearts. Establish them in our minds that we would believe you at your word as your people and know the freedom of fellowship with you through Christ. We pray this uh, in his name. Amen. Have you ever noticed how easy it is to take wonderful things for granted? Do you have that problem? I have that problem. Uh, It's July 4th. I think we can say um, we do that with our country a little bit. I've been able to travel, praise God. And um, yes, it's true. Our, Our country has darkness and flaws in many ways. But this is a wonderful, wonderful country full of freedom and opportunity, religious freedom. I mean, you think what we get to enjoy every day, and we just, do you take it for granted? I take it for granted. Seems normal. Let me tell you, in the scope of history, it's not normal. Another thing I take for granted, have you you ever done this like me? Have you ever spent a beautiful afternoon in good health with the people you love the most? And instead of being totally thrilled by that, you were irritable or bored or anxious or distant. Have you ever done that before? I do it all the time. It's one of the the pictures of my sin. I've been giving so much. I take it for granted. It's easy for us to take wonderful things for granted. And so this morning, I want to talk with you about two things I think, I suspect, most of us take for granted. And they are, they're not the hottest issue or the most uh, current of events. And yet, while nations even of the earth have risen and fallen, these two things have endured. And they will until Jesus returns. This morning, I want to help us treasure 
what we call the sacraments. I want us to treasure baptism and the Lord's Supper and not take them for granted. I want us to take them for what the Lord means us to take them for. So some of you are thinking, oh gosh, really? That just sounds like rote traditionalism. Uh, let me just, let me remind you, who gave these things to his people? Who, who are these things from? Jesus gave us baptism. He gave his people baptism. But where do we get the idea of the Lord's Supper? Jesus gave his people the Lord's Supper. And so don't you think even just given the greatness of the giver, that it's possible we take his gifts for granted and we don't quite see or taste or grab onto all that he has for us there. So I, I just want you to know this sermon is going to be different than what's usual here at Fountain of Life. Usually we study through books of the Bible. We love to do that. We think it's best. We just finished Revelation. We're going to start Ruth in a couple of weeks. But this sermon is going to be different. It's going to be more systematic. Basically, I'm asking, what does the Bible say about what we call the sacraments, baptism and the Lord's Supper? And how should we respond to them? Based on what the Bible says, what does Jesus want for you in regard to baptism and the Lord's Supper? So that's what we're going to look at together. Three things to ponder with you before we celebrate them, okay? Number one, first, we have to understand the sacraments biblically. We have to understand the sacraments biblically. The sacraments depend on the Word of God. We're not trying to make something up here. We're not trying to be superstitious. We know what they are and what they're for because God has told us. So we want to understand. Second, based on what the sacraments are, we need to think a little bit on how we are to receive them. What does it mean for us today? Because I'm telling you, when you see one person's baptism... If you're a Christian who trusts in Christ and you've been baptized, that someone else's baptism is supposed to be deeply meaningful for you as well. This is our thing this morning. When, when we take the Lord's Supper, it's deeply meaningful for all of us. So how are we to receive them? So understand them, receive them, and then third, we don't have too much time for this, but I want to think a little bit of how to respond to them. They're joyful, but they're serious. See, you never want to participate in a sacrament with a hypocritical heart. You don't want to do it without a deep trust in Jesus Christ and a desire to live for him. So that's what we're going to look at before we celebrate them together. Understand, receive, respond. First, let's understand. Word first. Word first. Sacraments depend on the revelation of the scriptures. Uh, have you ever noticed how easy it is for these things to be a little superstitious? And sometimes people will get a view, I guess, that if you just do baptism, it would be like good luck or something. Or, or sometimes there's even the view that there's something powerful in the elements themselves that, that I could make somehow the water holy. And just the water on its own touching someone would, would do something in and of itself. Or, or the idea that the, the bread and the cup we're going to pass out today, that there's something in there on its own. Uh, I just want to say that that's not true. And we know that's not true because that's not what the Bible says about them. So we have to understand what the Bible says about these things. 
It's the word of God that gives faith. It's the word that authors faith. It's faith in Jesus Christ that saves, not the sacraments. Sacraments have never saved anyone. But they sure do strengthen the faith of those who are saved. They strengthen the faith of those who are saved. So let's just see some of what the word says about the sacraments. First of all, we have two sacraments, and they are from Jesus himself for his people. Look at the first one, Matthew 28, 19. What did Jesus say? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. And what's the next word? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. So here's the reality. Followers of Jesus who trust him get baptized as a sign of their initiation into the covenant family of God. It's a gift from Jesus. Then there's another sacrament. It's the Lord's Supper. Look what Jesus said in Mark 14, 22. Just one example. As the disciples were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, what did he say? Take, this is my body. So Jesus has given us baptism. He's given us the Lord's Supper. Followers of Jesus will regularly eat the bread, drink the cup, as part of our enduring fellowship with him and what he's done for us. But why did Jesus give these to us? Have you ever wondered? Why? I'm going to give you maybe more on this than, than you asked for, okay? Because I want you to see the work God has done in these sacraments over ages of history to bring these gifts to you. It is, it is no small thing. It's no small thing. So I want to think with you a little bit about the background of the sacraments. Does anybody have an, an idea on what the background in the Bible of baptism might be? What's the background of baptism? If you're familiar with your Bible, you know there's a reason we started Abraham with Abraham today in our scripture text. The background of baptism is circumcision. So just a little bit of the biblical storyline. God created human beings in his image. You are designed to know and fellowship with God. That's what you're made for. That's what meaning in life is all about. That is where you'll be satisfied. But humans, Christian know, Christians know, we fell into sin. We denied the reality that God is good. We denied that his word is true. And so whenever you do that, you will replace him with another God. And for most modern Americans, it's the God of self. I define what's good. I define what's true. I'll worship as I please. But that's the fall. That's sin. And it, right at the moment of sin, the moment of the fall, God made a promise that he would save rebellious sinners and bring them to himself. He made this promise. And strangely, have you ever read through Genesis? Strangely, he starts with this man named Abraham. Have you read stories of, of his life? You think, oh, Abraham, he's in the Bible. He must be like varsity godly person. Have you read these stories? If you've read them, was Abraham saved by his own goodness? This is no way that's inconceivable. God, what are you doing? God has this plan. I'm going I'm to save Abraham by grace through faith. He's going to become a family, which is going to become a nation, which is going to have a king, and that's going to lead to the one who will save but God shows us how he saves in the life of Abraham. Look at Genesis 15, 6. One of the most important verses in the Bible. Genesis 15, 6. 
And Abraham, what? What did he do? He believed the Lord and what happened to him as a result of that trust and that faith. It was counted it to him as what? Righteousness. So God here has counted right standing, perfect goodness to someone who was not right and was not good. God has given it to him as a gift by grace, undeserved love, through, what did Abraham do again? It was through what? It was through faith. He believed God. Let's just pause. Aren't you glad that we are not saved by our works or our goodness or our obedience? Do any of you today think you're right with God based on your own goodness? Have you considered how you don't even keep your own standard? Have you ever found yourself angry at someone for what they did to you and then remembered you've done that before? And we haven't even taken into account God's holy and righteous standard that we are to love him with all we are and love our neighbor as ourselves every time. Can we really hope to be right with God based on our own good works? Have we not said to God's word, well, we won't listen to you, we'll invent this ourselves. And then we claim under our own authorities that we're good and we'll stand before a holy God in that way? No, no. So we see here, the only way to be right with God, it's such, that's why we call it the gospel, it's good news, it's by faith. And faith alone, faith alone so Abraham, it shows us how salvation will work. It's by faith alone. And you're like, why are you telling me this? Well, here's why. What was the sign that Abraham was right with God by faith alone? It was circumcision. Look at Genesis 17. Genesis 17, 7. God's promise. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations, for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. First of all, note, when God saves, he does it through a covenant with his people. He has a specific kind of relationship with a group of people. It's very detailed and specific and particular, and it's very serious. He promises himself to his people. And he not only promises himself to Abraham, did you see who else he promised himself to? I will be God to you and your offspring. And we continue. Look at the sign. Here's the sign for you. Verse 9. It's not, it's, not anything, it's not anything we would have invented. Verse 9. God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be what? Circumcised. What is God doing? Why? Well, first of all, there's a sign that represents the reality. Isn't Abraham already right with God by faith alone? Yes, it's not circumcision that did that. It's already happened. And yet, circumcision is this experiential marker of what is already an inward reality. It's to be seen. It's to be felt it's to be experienced. And Abraham, I would assume, he felt it, right? He experienced it. And he knew, not just by faith and hearing the word, which is first, he knew it by experience. 
I'm right with God by faith in his word, me and my offspring. It's powerful. What does circumcision mean? Why this as the sign? Deuteronomy tells us, look at Deuteronomy 10, 16. What is God's command to his people? Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart. Huh? That's not literal. It's not biological. But it's telling you something about your heart, which is what you love and who you are. Because look how it's unpacked. And be no longer what? Stubborn. See, in our sin, we have stubborn hearts. God, get out of my way. I'll be the authority. I'll do as I please. Faith is the humbling of the heart. It says, God, you're ultimate, and I trust you. I lay aside my own rule. I trust you. And so the circumcision on his body was a picture of what God had done in his heart through faith. And look at this promise, Deuteronomy 6, 36. The Lord your God, look at this promise, will circumcise your heart and the heart of your offspring so that you will what? So that you will love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, that you may live. It's God's promise to change sinful people's hearts. And friends, how does he do that? How are all these promises fulfilled? What is the circumcision in the life of Abraham pointing you to as you move through the story of God's salvation? It points you to Jesus Christ. It points you straight to Jesus Christ. Look at Colossians 2, verse 11. In him, here Paul is talking to Gentile believers in Christ. In him, you were circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. It's not physical. By putting off the body of the flesh. The flesh means that stubborn heart by the circumcision of Christ. Look at verse 12. Having been buried with him and with Jesus in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the powerful working of God who raised Jesus from the dead. Verse 13. And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside nailing it to the cross. Hundreds of years ago, God establishes this sign. And for hundreds of years ago, for hundreds of years, it points into the future. And where does it find its fulfillment? Jesus is the circumcision. He was the one who was cut off in blood for us so that we who trust in him could have new hearts circumcised hearts, soft hearts that love God in his ways through Christ. And as circumcision is fulfilled in Christ, it then becomes replaced with something even better. And you saw the marriage of these sayings in this text. What did Jesus replace circumcision with? Baptism. He replaced them with baptism. What are the similarities and differences between circumcision and baptism? I know that's what you were hoping we would talk about this morning. As you came here today. But we are the people of God, and these are our signs. And we do not want to treat them lightly. We want to treasure them. What are the differences? Number one, circumcision was more theocratically and ethnically oriented. It was for men alone who represented the covenant community. It was in the family 
of Abraham. Baptism takes that broader. Now it's for all who believe, men and women, right? It takes its, its broader. You no longer join the ancient nation of Israel like you would with, with circumcision. Now you join the church, which is in all nations. You see the difference? Moreover, another difference between circumcision and baptism, and this is important, there's no more blood. There's no more blood. Circumcision, it was bloody. Baptism, no blood at all. Why? Why no more blood? Because the debt has been paid. He died on the cross once for all. The blood has been shed, and it's enough. So what about their similarities? Well, circumcision points to Christ and is fulfilled in Christ. And what does baptism point to? Christ and how he has fulfilled all of God's promises to save. And so they are the same in that they are the one-time initiation into the covenant family of God by faith. And ultimately, the promise is the same. I will be God to you and to your offspring. God makes a covenant with his people by faith alone. What about the background to the Lord's Supper? Anybody know about the biblical background to the Lord's Supper? What would it be? What was Jesus celebrating on that night when he gave them the bread and the cup? He was celebrating Passover. Do you remember the story of, of Passover? Hundreds of years later, after Abraham, his, his family becomes a nation, and they're enslaved in Egypt, right? They're enslaved in Egypt, and, and Egypt is, is, is killing infant Israelites, enslaving them, and God speaks through Moses and says, he even speaks of Israel as my firstborn son. You're killing and enslaving my son, God says to Pharaoh. So he warns him again and again. Remember the plagues? Warns him again and again, and Pharaoh won't have it. He won't hear it. He won't repent. And so finally God says, okay, I'm bringing the rain. And the punishment will fit the crime. You've been killing my firstborn, the angel of just wrath is coming, and all the firstborn of Egypt will be taken. The punishment will fit the crime. It's sober, isn't it? Sober and serious to, to stand in rebellion to a holy God, to commit atrocity like that. Judgment's coming. And yet here, the surprising part of the story, does God say, hey, Israelites, don't sweat it. You guys are good. The Egyptians are bad. Is that what he says? It's not at all what he says. The Israelites are just as guilty before a holy God. They've sinned as well, and they deserve his wrath. So, so what is to be done? God gives them this strange celebration. You know the story? You, you, you kill the, the Passover lamb. What do you do with the blood? you remember? You put the blood on the door. So when the angel of just wrath comes, he'll see the blood of, of something else's death standing in your place. He'll see the blood on your door, and he'll pass over. You'll be saved from the wrath to come. And so for Israel, for, for hundreds and hundreds of years, Passover became this regular feast, right? It signifies what? It signifies forgiveness. It signifies deliverance. You're no longer slaves. You're brought out to be children of God, to live for him. And it signifies this nourishment, this continual nourishment, because year after year, you would go and celebrate the feast of God's forgiveness and his deliverance together with God's people. Well, this ought to ring some bells for you. 
What is Passover pointing to? Jesus was killed on a cross during the feast of Passover. He's called the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Do you see how God is orchestrating history to point you to look at Jesus? And so when God comes in his holiness and we realize we cannot stand before him, who's, where's the blood we can put on the door of our lives? Trust Jesus. Trust yourself to Jesus, who he is, and what he's done on the cross. And there, the wrath of God will pass over you. You will be saved. You'll be forgiven. You'll be delivered from slavery to sin. And, of course, Jesus replaces Passover with what? The Lord's Supper. How is it different? Well, again, it's, it's not tied to the theocracy of Israel. You don't have to join the ancient nation of Israel to take the Passover anymore. No, now you join the church through faith, which is among all nations. That's a difference. Another difference, again, same difference as the last sign. There's no more what? There's no more blood. In the Old Testament, you would, you would kill the lamb and you, and you would eat the meat. And now with Jesus, he gives you bread and wine. No more blood because, again, it's finished. The blood has already been shed. And it's a feast now. And as we celebrate the feast, we remember his body for us. What is the word telling you, my friends? Do you see how God has directed history to point Circumcision to point, Passover to point. What is God pointing us to? Jesus. And Jesus fulfills circumcision and the Passover and replaces them with better signs. Baptism and the Lord's Supper so that you can experience and enjoy him. Friends, put your faith in Jesus Christ and not the sacraments. Faith comes through hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Trust God's message to you of how to be saved in the gospel. Trust yourself to Jesus to make you right with God, and he will through faith and faith alone. Sacraments have never saved anyone. We're saved by faith, but sacraments sure have encouraged people's faith. And that's what we get into now. How should we receive the sacraments? Well, the reason I had Romans 4.11 read today, let's look at that one more time. Romans 4.11, it really helps us understand what sacraments are supposed to be. Romans 4.11, Abraham received, look at this first word, the what? The sign of circumcision as a what? There's a second word, as a what? As a seal of the righteousness he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. What does a sign do? You know, we're saved by hearing. We are people of the word or reading, if you like. We're, we're, we're people of the word. But all of a sudden, a sign because something you can see. It's something you feel. It's something you experience together. It's a participatory experience. And so God gives this to you as a gift. He gives this to you as a gift. Uh, think about 
Uh, Martin Lloyd-Jones is a, a, an old preacher, and he used the, the idea of a wedding ring. And, and he says, imagine a young lady who knows she has this man's love and commitment. She knows. They've talked about it. They have plans together. He loves her. She knows. But, but one day, he gets, uh, he, he gets on his knee, and, and what does he pull out of his pocket? A ring. Is the ring his love? And wouldn't the ring be meaningless without his love, except, you know, you could sell it at a pawn shop for a guitar amp or something? <laughs> it would be meaningless without his love. Without his promise, it's just, eh. But, but as a sign, as he says, I love you and I want you to be mine, and she takes it, and, and what does she do? She puts it on her finger, and it seals it. What does it seal? You experience that it's for you. It's not the promise. It's not his love. It's not the relationship. But it's a, it's a sign. And doesn't, doesn't she enjoy the sign, generally speaking? Friends, Jesus is giving you the ring when you participate in the sacraments. It's not your salvation. He is your salvation. And you're saved by faith alone in him. And yet, like Abraham would say, I know I'm righteous by faith, but by faith I felt I was righteous. Me and my offspring in the sign. So we are to say, I know that as I trust Jesus, he forgives me. But as I take the bread with my brothers and sisters and put it in my mouth, I feel the sign that his forgiveness is for me right now. I'm putting on the ring. It's a sign. It's a seal. It's the way we taste and experience the truth of the word we believe. Word is first. The sacraments help us experience God's love for us in the word. Friends, you and I are looking for the experience of God's love. And sometimes you look in very terrible places. You're, lo you're looking for love, meaning, purpose, satisfaction. You don't, you don't even know what you're really looking for. And even those of us, we're believers, we, we, we want to feel God's love. One thing I want to impress upon you is Jesus has made these regular practices for the church for the purpose of you feeling and experiencing God's love. That's why it's here. It's a sign to you that it's true for you. It's a sign to you that he loves you. The old theologians use the phrase, as surely as. When you put your faith in Christ and you see a baptism, as surely as the water hits skin and cleans it, I'm clean in Christ. When you drink the cup, as surely as the juice goes into my mouth and into my stomach, my faith on Jesus, in Jesus and his cross for me is knowledge that he loves me. That's the way you're supposed to take it. And these things are, are meant to happen, right? Part of the sign and seal is the power of together. It's the power of together. You don't do, you know, I, I heard of guys doing the Lord's Supper with like Bud Light and a Twinkie at a bar. No. 
No. You don't do baptism out by yourself. No. They happen in context with the word preached in the community of faith. And that's why theologians have long said the sacraments are marks of the true church. This is part of what makes us who we are. Just like you see this and you go, he's married. They see Lord's Supper and baptism and go, Christians. Look at this, look at this quote from Edmund Clowney. He says, these outward signs mark out a visible fellowship. They structure Christ's church as a community with membership. Baptism requires a decision about admission to the community. The supper, a sign of continuing fellowship, implies the exclusion of those who turned away from the Lord. The sacraments also remind us of our fellowship with one another as we receive the Lord's blessing. They require corporate worship. And I think this is so good. Western culture has made religion a private matter. Tolerating Christian faith that does not go public or behave in ways that are politically incorrect. The sacraments, however, require us to confess Christ's name before others. Even in hostile societies where we risk persecution. So so I want to see now just for a moment what you're supposed to receive from the Lord, what Jesus is telling you. Again, this is for people who have faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to hear what Jesus is telling you, first of all, in baptism. Now, this is is not just for your baptism. You don't just hear this one time. This is for every Christian baptism you are ever a part of in the Christian community. This is what Jesus is telling you, plural, us, y'all, if you want to be Southern. Okay? Number one, three things. Remember this. Baptism, Jesus tells you again, you experience, you're washed, you're named, you're united to Jesus Christ. I can't, I can't go through all the text here this morning, but the, a major idea in the New Testament is that baptism washes. That's why it's water, right? You take a shower, it washes you. And as you see a baptism, when you trust in Christ, it's a sign and seal to us together that as surely as the shower cleans your skin, you've been washed personally by the blood of Jesus Christ through faith alone. Moreover, baptism is a naming ceremony. You get a new name. If you were with us in Revelation, you, you, you remember, right? The name is written on the forehead. Listen to this. What's, what's the greatest blessing of the Old Testament? This is, my, this is my favorite text in the Old Testament, maybe, and I, I even try to write a song about it. Look at number six. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, First of all, you see the primacy of God's word. Speak, speak, speak. Speak to Aaron and his sons, saying, Thus shall you bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall, what? Put my name on the people of Israel and I will bless them. Do you see how God identifies with his people? He puts his name on them. His face is towards them in love, which means the blessing of his eternal grace. Now think of what Jesus says about baptism. Matthew 28, 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the, the name. And now we know more about the name. It's the name of the Father. 
and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Friends, if you trust Jesus Christ, when you hear the name spoken over the one baptized and you see the water running upon the one baptized, you are to know that just as the water is hitting that person's body, so surely has God written his name on you. You are his. And it's meant to be a sign of your faith and a seal. It holds you again for another another season of life. I'm his. I know I'm his. And when I doubt I'm his, I remember the water fell on me. And it's a picture that I'm his. Not because the water fell on me. Because of Jesus. But the water helps me feel it, taste it. Friends, you were washed, you were named, and you were united. Read Romans 6. Your death was his death. Your life was his life. You are united to Christ, which means he is yours and with you forever. He's with us as we celebrate the sacraments. Now, one thing I need to spend a few minutes on here. Uh, Maybe some of you are saying, Matt, you're telling me that these sacraments are for those who have faith in Jesus Christ. And I hope you're picking up on that. If you didn't pick up on that, I messed up or, you know, quit checking the baseball scores for a minute, okay? It's through faith in Christ, okay? You've heard me say it. And now some of you are saying, that's interesting that you say that because you're about to baptize people who are too young to put their faith in Christ. Am I right? So I just want to, I don't want to split with anybody over this because we have unity in the real thing, okay? Faith in Christ. But I want to show you at least this. I want to show you there's a biblical argument for why we give the sign of parents' faith in Christ to those too young to have faith. I just want, I want, I want you to say at least, okay, I see where they got this biblically. Because we're word-based. We, we don't want to make this up. We don't want to do anything out of superstition. We don't get to play with these things like they're ours. We, we do what we're told from the word. And so it might not even make sense that we, why would you give the sign of faith to somebody who doesn't have faith? Well, I'll at least say this. What if he told us to, at least in some context? So let me ask this, is there precedence for thinking that the sign of righteousness from responsible adult faith could be given to those too young to have faith? Is there any precedence? We read it this morning, okay? If you want to, if you want to hear what the apostle says about saved by faith alone, you will go to Romans 4. That's the, that's the central headquarters for this doctrine. Saved by faith in Christ alone. And in Romans 4, we saw Romans 4 or let's look at Romans 4.3. What does the scripture say? Abraham what? Believed God. It was reckoned him as righteousness. And then we saw. Now look at verse 11. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal. What was it? What was the seal? What, what was it a seal of? The righteousness he had by what? Faith. His faith. It was a seal of his faith. Now you and I know good and well when he was supposed to give that sign to his children. When? Eight days old. So I'll just ask you this. Is there at least precedence for God to say, give the sign of adult faith, righteousness by faith, give that sign to children too young to have faith? Is there precedence? Yes, there's precedence. No one can say there's not precedence. Now, some might say, but in the New Testament, it looks different. It always looks like faith before baptism. And my first response to that would be, absolutely. 
Because those who baptize infants from a Protestant perspective and those who baptize adults, we're on the same page when it comes to the conversion of adults. We are absolutely on the same page. When someone who has not been baptized converts, what do do we want to know about them before we baptize them? Faith in Jesus Christ. We are united when somebody who is an adult converts to Christianity, faith first, then baptism. But really, it's a different question. The question is not, what do we do with adults who convert? The question we ask, we need to ask is, what about the children of believers? Because the precedence of the Old Testament is the sign of righteousness by faith goes to the children of the adults who had that faith. That's the precedence. And so what does the New Testament say? Well, credo-baptists, those who would say, no, you wait till they're old enough, they would say, I think, you're giving too much of a coherence between the Abrahamic covenant and our salvation in Christ, right? And there, there is somewhat of a difference. Remember, to, to be circumcised, you become part of ethnic Israel with, with all the, the rest of it. And, and baptism's different. It, it broadens the scope, right? It's not, it's not for one ethnicity. It's for all nations. It's for, it's for men and women, all, all, all nations. So they're saying, hey, if you're baptizing infants, that's, that's too much coherence because of the, of the nature of how salvation's working. It's not through Israel anymore. It's, it's all nations. And I think, I think that's an important point. Just a, another reason I don't want to split over this issue. But, but one more thing just to raise. When it comes to the New Testament, do we see a continuity or a change when it comes to the sign of the covenant being given to children of believers? So there's what, what evidence would you have from the New Testament Either that the sign is no longer given to the children of the believers, or that it is. And here's part of the difficulty. We're all going to have to argue from implication. Unless you know a verse that says, and that's why we don't give the sign of the covenant to children of believers anymore. Please show me that verse after the service. I don't think you'll find it. There's also not a verse that says, and that's why definitely give the sign of the covenant to the children of believers. You won't have that verse either. There's also not a story about a kid who grew up in the church and then finally when he was old enough, they baptized him. You, you, won't, you won't actually find that story either. We have to argue from um, implication. And historically, Reformed Christians see more of a continuity in the way Jesus fulfills the Abraham covenant on this issue, more than less. We, we think the New Testament looks like The sign remains the same. I'll give you three reasons. Number one, Acts 2.38, Peter's giving his sermon to the Israelites who are trusting Christ. Thousands of them are believing. At the end of that sermon, Acts 2.38, Peter says, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For this promise is for you. And what's the next phrase? And your children. Why would he say that? It's, it's, it's nearly a direct echo from Genesis 17. It's for you and your children. All who are far off, far off, everyone whom the Lord our God will calls to himself. That's one. It seems like the precedence is there. Second, household baptism. Have you read through the book of Acts? You see the gospel spreading through Ju- Ju- Judah, Jerusalem, or Ju- Jerusalem, Samaria, and the, end, and the ends of the world. Right? You see that? And then several times you get... Somebody converted, and then their whole household was baptized several times. Uh, one time you don't get that is the, the eunuch, and there's a reason for that. 
Did any of you catch that, right? Okay, another one is Paul. We don't think he have any, has any children, so we don't get that. But there are, there are, I think there's five household baptisms. Everybody's baptized. And it's strange, isn't it? You, you hear that, but you don't hear, except for the little ones too young to believe. You don't hear that. And it would be really hard to imagine that those five households didn't have any children in them. So it just seems like precedence that believers are to give the, their children the sign of the covenant. One more, look at Ephesians 6.1. Look at the way Paul talks to, his, to children. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you, that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. Do you see these covenant commands and promises? Obey the covenant command to honor your father and mother, and it will go well with you. These are covenant commands and promises with covenant blessings, which tells you, what does it tell you about children? They're a part of the covenant community. So you might say, wait, when you baptize these children, are you saying you save them? I'm like, no. When did you think I was, I'm, I'm not a Roman Catholic. I, I, mean that, I mean that seriously. I do not think signs save. Signs never save. Signs encourage the faith of those who are saved. And so we give our children the sign from this point of view showing them you're in. Now we warn them, don't be a covenant breaker. The stipulations of the covenant are faith in Christ, and so we point them, trust Christ, follow him according to his word. Don't be a covenant breaker. Don't show that it wasn't yours by faith, but we let, they start in. They start in. So I hope you can at least see our biblical argument for that. To wrap it up, when you see a baptism today, if you put your faith in Christ, what are you supposed to think of? I was washed. I was named. I'm united to Christ. What about the Lord's Supper? Well, it's the same thing, right? In the Lord's Supper, you're forgiven, you're delivered, you're nourished as you feed on Christ. And so what should you take today? If you trust Christ and you take that bread, what should you know? As sure as you put the bread in your mouth and chew it and swallow it, Jesus' body was broken for you. As sure as you take that juice and drink it, Jesus' blood was shed for you why does Jesus emphasize it's for you? Take it so that you can receive the covenant and enjoy and be strengthened, a sign and seal of his love. Last point, and I won't spend very long on it. What's the main call of baptism? And if you're going to do this, right, we're in covenant with God. What, what's the main call of baptism? Well, in Romans 6, Paul, you know, some people say, hey, if we're saved by grace, can't we just keep sinning? More and more grace. And Paul says, no way, may it never be. Look at Romans uh, 6, 1 to 2. What should we say? Or should we continue to sin that grace may abound no, by no means? How can we who have died to sin go on living in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? Do you see what happened here? How come you can't keep living in sin? You were united to Christ, which means it's inconceivable that you would still want it in the same way. And so when you take baptism, you're repenting and saying, Jesus, I want to live for you because you've given your life for me. What about the Lord's Supper? What's the main call of the Lord's Supper? Look at 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. Whoever therefore, 
I'm skipping ahead. 1 Corinthians eleven twenty-seven. 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. I thought we were celebrating Christ's love. Why are we thinking about judgment? You know what, you know what was happening in the context of the Corinthian church? When they, they would celebrate the Lord's Supper, the rich, who had more resources and could get off work on time, they would start celebrating the supper first, and they wouldn't wait for the poor and the slaves and those who couldn't make it till later, and they just give them leftovers or scraps. And Paul is saying, you are desecrating the supper you are eating. Because in the very supper, Jesus is saying, I'm giving myself for you, and yet you will not give yourself for one another. We need to be unified in Christ and love one another. Because together we're saying as we take the supper, Jesus died for me, and if he died for me by faith alone, guess what? He died for you, and if he loves me and I love him, guess who I need to love? You. Guess who you need to love? Us. And so we see how the sacrament motivates us to covenant faithfulness. Covenant faithfulness. Let me wrap it up, friends. Sacraments are physical signs and seals given to us by Jesus to strengthen our corporate faith in his covenantal love for us and motivate covenant faithfulness to him. First step, do you trust Jesus today? Trust him. Sacraments don't save. He does. Because you trust him, experience his promises together. When you see that baptism, remember what he's done for you. When we take the Lord's Supper, remember what he's done for us. As Jesus is going to say, this is for you. This is my body for you. Let's pray. We'll take up our offering. Then we'll baptize. Our Father, we thank you for your promises and these great gifts that we could taste and experience your very love for us. And we pray that by the Holy Spirit, you would give that encouragement to us, even this morning, as we see these baptisms, as we take the Lord's Supper. We pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said, amen. Thank you for listening. And we invite you to visit us Sunday mornings here at Fountain of Life Fellowship. For more information, visit www.folfcrc.com.